There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and it's that time of the week when we talk about legal matters, uh, often matters that have to do with the former President of the United States and the sometimes the Supreme Court. Today, we've got uh, two uh, halves to this podcast, uh, conversations with two of the smartest legal minds in the country and two of the people we'd like the best. In the first half of this podcast, we're going to talk to Harry Littman, who is the senior legal affairs columnist for the Los Angeles Times and former U.S. Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General. He's also the creator and host of the very good Talking Feds podcast. And then the second half of this show, we're going to talk to Barb McQuaid, an MSNBC legal analyst and a professor of practice at University of Michigan Law, who co-hosts the Sisters-in-Law podcast. So this is kind of a syzygy of podcasts lining up to get the perspectives of um, the folks behind them. Let's start off with Harry. Welcome, Harry. How are you? Very good. So great to see you. I've been doing this a while, and people sometimes uh, you know, tease me about SAT words. I think it's the first time ever, and certainly many I've heard syzygy offered there. So kudos to you, and pleasure to be here with such an erudite host. Well, thank you. You know, my mother, when I was a kid, had, gave me one of those word of the day calendars. You know, Is that right? Calendar, Index know. cards and stuff? Yeah, right. yeah. She, she was, yeah. She was an editor, so that explains all there this. There you go. Um, anyway, uh, I, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday. People will listen to it whenever they like, but minutes ago I saw you um, on MSNBC, as we often see you. And I suspect we will be seeing a lot of you for the next year. Um, and you were talking a little bit about the uh, case in Fulton County. And we're kind of in the um, uh, uh, sort of uh, final preparation stage for the first of the trials that are coming out of the Fannie Willis uh, uh, series of indictments in her RICO case. Um, this would be the Chesboro um, and Sidney uh, yeah. Powell part of the trial. Um, and uh, you were talking about the fact that one of the folks in that, that trial 
um, uh, has flipped and so is going to be testifying against Sidney Powell. Uh, but the first thing is apparently she's trying to get this um, uh, tossed again. That's not going to work, is it? It's not going to work. It's funny that every time I think about this case, I I always have to bear in mind that she charged it as a RICO, and that just has implications up and down. So for Sidney Powell now and Ken Chesbro, these are the few weeks before trial when these uh, final kind of uh, stabs at motions to dismiss are offered. They're long shots, whatever could stick against a wall, or possibly just to have a um, issue they hope on appeal. Why not do it? Sydney Powell's, even for this standard, were extraordinarily weak. Her her two uh, motions were basically, hey, I'm innocent, so there must be more evidence you haven't given me, and there must be prosecutorial misconduct. It's really not much more sophisticated than that. But back to the primary point, David, that I was making, you have Scott Hall, who, as you say, has pleaded guilty, and there's a sort of freestanding story in the Fulton County indictment about Coffee County and the incursion into computers down there, and Sidney Powell is in the thick of it. So in contrast almost to everyone, with the possible exception of Chesbro, she is really now at the stage where the pressure is on. If she wants to plead, she better do it now. She's looking at a trial soon with strong evidence against her. All the others, and we were just talking about this on Chris Jansing's show, um, they are have been approached apparently about plea overtures and the like, and normally there would be a kind of race to um, the, the DA's office, but it hasn't happened here. And I think, again, always looking at it being charged as a RICO, this first trial is going to be four, five, six months just for the two of them. From the point of view of the other defendants, that means A, there's not great time pressure, and B, they get to get a very long preview, comprehensive preview of the government's case, and they can evaluate things after that. So the one person I think in a singular position here is Powell because she's A, going to trial really soon, and B, one of the witness who has turned uh, state's evidence and is going to cooperate has a lot to say about her. So she's in the kind of pressure cooker that for now the other 18 are not. Now, the, the witness that's turned state's evidence got a really sweet deal. It was, I think, five years probation. Right, um, not, no, no jail, no jail time, time at all. Jail there. Yeah. Presumably that is not going to be what's on offer after this trial, right? I mean, in other words, now would be a time to move if somebody wanted the sweetest possible deal. Yeah, 100%. So this is what prosecutors say. You know, early deal, best deal. And, you know, can't be better than uh, Scott Hall, as you say, not serving a day in jail. And it's a very hellish jail, that that state uh, Fulton County jail. So, yeah, it gets prosecutors are able to say, look, if I have Hall and one other person, let's say just for the Coffee County episode, I don't need you. So also as a as an inducement, it's very clear. Come in early. That's why. Um, you might have expected once Scott Hall sort of broke the dam that there would have been a bit of a cascade. And it's interesting that it hasn't happened. 
And when I analyze it, I go back, as always, to the fact that has repercussions sort of everywhere that she's brought this behemoth case, which is the same against everyone, right? It's not just that it's huge. It's that all 19 defendants are, are responsible for all the conduct. We're going to have a trial coming forward now, four or five months, where only occasionally will it even say the names of the two defendants in the dock. Uh, you know, you wonder how a jury is going to react to that. But just um, generally, it's uh, it changes the dynamic sort of, as far as I can see, kind of soup to nuts, including, not least, the prospect of the former president standing trial in, on those charges before November 2024, which I count as remote. Well, um, let's flash forward, not all the way to November 24. Let's flash forward to February or March, because if it's five months or four months, this trial is going to end then. And at that time, um, let's just talk about what the con- consequences for the other defendants will be in the event that these two are convicted. I mean, what's the message? They've got a strong case. You know, uh, that that's when you expect the dominoes to fall. Um, you know, I mean, how, how, what's the, you know, chemistry following a guilty verdict for these people? Yeah, great question. And again, I always start with principle one, that this is a huge case. I think the message is, oh yeah, dominoes are going to fall. If they wait this long, they've waited a long time, but it's the exact same charges and exact same evidence. So if the jury um, uh, actually executes the, the instructions that they're given, all that they have to find for the other 17 is they joined this criminal enterprise, this by analogy kind of mob business, which, which had uh, as its sort of business raison d'etre, uh, stealing Biden's votes in Georgia and awarding them to Trump. So under the law, and this is the power of RICO and also, you know, the, the something that gives people pause, but that's for another day, Every all the others ought to be, are in really, really uh, hot water because it's the same proof and the same charges. Now, of course, it's good to have seen the government's case play out and have some ideas about cross, et cetera. But the, if there's a decisive victory against Chesbro and Powell, the other 17 really have to think, what are my, my chances can't be very strong because it's the same case, the same evidence. And, you know, I may, maybe I can, maybe it's not too late to cut a deal. Oh, please. Oh, please. Is the reverse true? If, if they're found, uh, not guilty, does that does that then send a message to all the others? Like, okay, and they start rubbing their hands. You know, we're we're that we're gonna we're gonna ride this out because the case is a mess. If you're like me, you're probably more than a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So, why does American democracy look the way it does, and how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Host Simone Leeper speaks with experts from across the political spectrum and takes a deep dive into the forces 
fueling our elections, not just in our nation's capital, but at all levels of government. Democracy Decoded will help you make sense of how we currently elect our leaders and hold them accountable, and how we can better ensure that all citizens have the right to have their voices heard. Clearly, these are exactly the issues we need to be discussing right now, given what is happening all around us. Tune in to learn more about how we can use innovative ideas to build a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah. So first, uh, I think the odds of an outright acquittal are very uh, small. But let's say there's a, um, a hung jury. So you have to try the whole thing again. First, given the speedy trial, you maybe try Chesbro and Pal again, and we say four months, but there's picking the jury and there's the defense case. But I think you are right. The message to them, you know, because that's a victory uh, if, if, if there's not a guilty verdict. And they'll say, hmm, especially because we're a little worried about if we, if we cooperate here, what it means in other cases. I think it does say, yeah, we'll, we'll stick on the sidelines. No, no harm uh, yet. And pol- politically, because we have this odd, maybe, uh, you know, unique feature in American history that it's also playing out and as part of a the upcoming election, I think that will a, a um, hung jury will play as a victory for Trump. And on in that political scale and the consequences to the presidential election. Yeah, even though it's, you know, it's, it's not an acquittal, I think it will play as a as a victory and be calamitous for all the reasons that the um, the political stakes are so high as they're intertwined with the with the trial. Yeah, one of the reasons that I, on a regular basis, say people who predict what's going to happen next year politically um, uh, need to be taken with a big grain of salt because we've never had multiple trials against the principal candidate uh, and the people closest to him going on simultaneously. And as we've seen with this New York trial, um, j- just to pick one example, we've seen it in other cases as well. You know, when Trump's in the room and Trump leaves the room, he talks to the press, he says crazy things. Um, uh, maybe he gets sanctioned, judges do things. There's news every day that's a potential, you know, mo- moves the needle, right? Yes. So, I mean, even today, as you say, like Tish James, the AG says the the Donald Trump show is over. Now we're back to a pretty boring trial that's going to go on for some months, although one that has huge financial implications uh, for him. But, you know, he's on apparently to trying to play the uh, Lone Ranger uh, uh, galloping into D.C. and solving the Republicans' problems with Speaker and and the like, but everything overlaps. He, in fact, he used this as an excuse that he had to attend to get to wriggle out of the um, a deposition in the Michael Cohen case. But now, of course, uh, as soon as it comes to Wednesday morning, he's gone. Cohen is bringing a, a motion to the court today, saying, you know, he he hoodwinked you. But yeah, I mean, the number of moving parts, the complications. You're you're very wise, I think, to to be sounding that cautionary note repeatedly. Well, you know that you know you you also say, well, you know, Trump's not there, so it's now back to boring trial. 
So what has happened on this boring day in that trial? Uh, Trump started out with a true social thing where he used racial slurs against Tish James and said all sorts of outrageous stuff after having already had a gag order put on him. Um, uh, Alina Haba, apparently his lawyer, apparently uh, was shouting and behaving in a bad way in the court. And the judge was like, you know, chill down. You know, this is not the way to behave. Uh, the judge also uh, um, uh, issued um, more explicit instructions that the Trump organization couldn't move assets between yeah, or that's the headline today. Right. That's really, well, that's it, what yeah. I was going to turn to you about because it seems yeah. to me, um, something has made him a little edgy on that point. Uh, we don't know exactly what that is, but again, it, it hints at the consequences of this one trial that we weren't focused on for Donald Trump's brand, his identity, his uh, his wealth. And, you know, just I'll say parenthetically, and you can comment on all of it, I don't think ordinary people fully appreciate the financial burden of being in all of these trials simultaneously. Uh, and that was illustrated also today because Mike Lindell, Mr. MyPillow, um, uh, uh, has just had his lawyers drop him. By and was saying he owes us millions and millions of dollars, and and uh, he can't pay it. And Giuliani is going through the same thing in Georgia. Yeah, he. I mean, he seems to be flat broke. And look, it's not just the multiple ones. A trial like this, and again, four months. You know, you've got to have your lawyers in trial every day, even though it doesn't concern you. I think every day is probably five figures. Uh, and, you know, and it just—I I don't think anyone. So, so that's a real part of the dynamic of who's going to plead: Jenna Ellis, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, and um, uh, the like. But uh, you know, everything you you say is uh, so about the broader dynamic here. And he has—he's on really—you you, know—he's in front of five. Uh, different judges now. Engeron, who's in, who's presiding over the fraud case, is, I think, among them, about as tough as they come for... He, he will slap a bigger gag order on him. Right now, it's just, don't don't mess with my court uh, staff. But this kind of stuff, I, he, I think he is a guy who would slap it on him and send him to jail. He's that kind of sort of New York um, uh, judge. So that's a, you know, a real um, uh, prospect that, that, you know, is this, is this going to um, expand out there? Um, and you, one other point about um, Fulton County that you raised, David, I'm sorry, I should have this in mind, um, that, you, that you asked about, I had a comment. Um, maybe maybe it, will, it will return with your, um, with your next um, question. But, oh, yeah, this is what I want. I mean, it's obvious, but so manifest. There's a weird way, I, you know, it's always that path lies madness trying to psychoanalyze Donald Trump. But there's a sense in which he's unconcerned about the criminal charges. I mean, not real. I'm sure he's concerned about going to jail. But what they say about him personally, he almost part of it takes as a badge of honor. Yeah, they were my documents and I took them. Yeah, I got my supporters revved up. Not this one. This obviously goes right to where he breathes. He is mortified, infuriated, 
at the prospect that this will pierce the bubble that he's been living inside of forever as a you know savvy businessman. Uh, and in fact, there's all kinds of reasons to believe that it's never been true. And maybe it's bound up in issues with his father or whatever. I don't know why, but he is really, I think, fit to be tied about this trial and its prospect for exposing him as a financial fraud and as a, of course, he's an inveterate promiscuous liar, but especially on this one thing he cares most about uh, that, you know, that at the end of the day, it could look like he was always a loser as a businessman. And that seems to be something that really, really is his Achilles heel. Yeah. And today, uh, for those of you who celebrate, is the day that he was dropped from the Forbes 400 list. Right. Um, right. So it's, it's, it's already taking a toll in a few ways. We just have a few minutes here, but I want to stay sort of focused on, on the immediate future, uh, because, sure. Judge Chutkin has not been heard from. She will be heard from in the next two weeks um, uh, and will be making a number of important decisions um, concerning how that trial is going to progress, having to do potentially with um, limited gag orders, which have been requested by Jack Smith um, and other matters. What, What do you think we'll know about the Chutkin trial by the end of October that we don't know now? Yeah. And let me just say, as I always think of of the Rico trial and how sprawling it is, Mar-a-Lago, where he's just asked for a huge continuance, I think of Eileen Cannon. Chutkin, to me, is the main event, and this trial is the main event. So first, they've made a motion for, they're calling it a very limited gag order. It is in the sense as it's tailored to her powers of trying to in, protect the integrity of the jury pool and... God forbid the you know physical safety of witnesses and others, but I think she will enter it. But that, in contrast to what Angaran has done so far, really will be making you know clipping his wings as far as the things he's out there trying to to say on the you know political hustings. She's she's uh, got all the briefings on this gag order, and she set the hearing. For October 16th, which she could have done it much sooner. To me, her she's being very thoughtful. She's conferring with her colleagues, all of whom have been dealing with this broader case for years. And she's really looking from the end game back, the end game being where she doesn't want to get to. And that is, bring your toothbrush, Donald Trump, you're going to jail. She wants to have as much sort of space between that as possible to issue successive orders. But at some point she comes to next time you do this, you know, I'm, I'm yanking your, um, your release. And then, I mean, it really, to me, there's reason to think he's wants this to happen. Strange as it may seem, he, 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 you know, this martyrdom possibility um, uh, I think is part of his political strategy. So what will we know by the end of the month? We'll know shortly at the 16th will be a hearing. I think we should have every expectation. She'll issue a order on the government's motion for a gag order by then. So we'll know first how tough she's going to be with him, how, and how far down the road she is toward the eventual sanction. That's one. And then, too, you know, in the normal course of things, just as is happening with Sidney Powell 
and Ken Chesbro now as they approach trial, we're getting to the point where, you know, Trump uh, is needing to file pretrial motions and he's going to be filing them. There's a teeny bit, not like Mar-a-Lago, but a teeny classified information procedures act there, and he'll try to, to leverage it. We're going to know, we're going to have a much better idea than we have now. And we already have a bit of idea of whether she's going to let things slip, you know, more than a couple weeks from the May uh, trial. And that to me, I think right now the betting line is, yeah, it won't happen before he becomes effectively the nominee, but it'll happen well before the November date when, so voters will get to know, is he convicted of extremely serious crimes against the democracy, basically. So, you know, that's to me the ball to keep our eye on and we'll know how how more firm she's going to be with him and uh, get a much better idea of how soon it's all going to be come uh, October 30th. Well, we literally just have a few seconds left with you. Um, Let me ask one uh, related, seemingly small question, but I've seen some people referring to it. When she makes that decision regarding the gag order on October 16th or before, to what extent can she take into consideration his outbursts and inappropriate behavior in other trials, like the New York trial? Yeah, because they're going to proffer it to her. The short, the short answer is some as evidence, but it do, it doesn't drive things. But it'll it'll be you know part and parcel other bad deals. But it's about this case, and uh, so you know I think you'll hear it mentioned, but it's not a reason to do the order. I think. I see. All right. Well, look, Harry, it's always good to see you. Uh, We'll have to have a special episode focused on what you should write your book on, because everybody will want to buy it. We'll we'll bring in a bunch of people. We can brainstorm together. Um, But until then, I look forward to seeing you as we do every day on MSNBC and reading you in the Los Thank Angeles Thank you so much. Times. Although, let me just say, for anyone out there who actually cares, I will be gone for three weeks starting a, uh, Thursday the 12th uh, on a long-planned overseas anniversary vacation. So I'll be uh, absent, and I, I'm sure the Republic will survive. But I, I won't be on MSNBC for the balance of October starting in a week. Wow. Well, look, have a good, safe, and enjoyable Thank trip, and we'll see you when you get back. Thanks, Harry. Thanks, David. Always a pleasure. So we're at the point in our show where we say to everybody who's not a member, we've got to let you go, and we appreciate your coming. And if you want to hear the remainder of our show, be a member, um, uh, go to the DSRnetwork.com, click on membership. It's $5 a month. You get to hear all the bonus content. This week, the bonus content is our conversation with Barb McQuaid, who is one of the best and brightest minds out there. Such a great commentator, um, and I'm personally looking forward to it. I suspect all of our members are looking forward to it. And if you're not a member, go become one now so you can hear it. For all of our members, stand by. For your those of you who are not members, thanks very much, and we'll see you next week.